Open with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew, and today to chapter 27, where we will read in a moment, beginning in verse 45. Matthew 27, 45. And we, as we return to this portion of the Scripture, We find Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Prince of life, the Son of God, hanging on a cross as we pick up today in verse 45, loving the church and giving himself up for her, laying down his life for the sheep, shedding his own blood for my soul, as Spafford put it. And we read now as follows, now... From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Father, may it be that by the time we finish today, we would be saying, truly, this is the Son of God. And that we would be trusting him, worshiping him, giving our allegiance to him. We pray in his name. Amen. If we consider the Bible to unfold for us God's plan for the ages, and it does, And if we consider Jesus to be the centerpiece of the Bible and of that plan, and he is, and if we consider the cross to be the centerpiece of Jesus' ministry, and it is, then we find ourselves this morning at the very epicenter of history, do we not? We find ourselves today at the cross, at the very epicenter of God's plan for the ages. This is the book that describes that plan for the ages. This is the man who is the center of that book. This is the event which is the center of his ministry. This is the center of all history. What a privilege for us 
to find ourselves at that place today through Matthew's gospel. And as we linger today at Golgotha, at the cross, I want us to notice three things, three categories of things. First, we're going to notice two scriptures fulfilled in this passage, and then we're going to observe three signs, and then finally, we will consider three sayings. So two scriptures fulfilled, three signs, and three sayings from here at the centerpiece of all history. First of all, two scriptures fulfilled in this passage this morning. One of them is that prophecy in Psalm 69, 21, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's a prophecy of Jesus, and it is fulfilled here in verse 48, when one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. It's just as Jesus would later say, to those two disciples on the Emmaus Road, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. God's word is sure. Has he spoken and will he not make it good? And he makes it good here, doesn't he? For my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink, Psalm 69 And now Matthew 27, verse 48, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. And we see this same principle of Scripture fulfilled at play in verse 46 as well, as Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can remember sitting in the seminary classroom with a Professor Dr. Kirk Kilpatrick and him teaching us on these words and instructing us that our biblical book titles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and so on, were not originally in the Bible, and nor were our chapter numbers, Matthew 27, Psalm 22, and so on. Those things weren't originally in the Bible. They were put there so that we can find our way through it more easily. But in old times, to refer to a particular section of the Bible before these titles and chapter numbers were added, one would quote the first little bit of the book or perhaps of the chapter to which one was referring. So whereas we would say, I want to speak to you today from the book of Genesis, they would say, I want to speak to you today from in the beginning. Or whereas we would say, let's think for a moment today about Psalm 23, they would say, let's think for a moment today about the Lord is my shepherd. And Jesus, said Dr. Kilpatrick that day, is following the same convention here when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because you may remember from a few moments ago, those are the opening words of a particular portion of scripture. Those are the opening words of what we call Psalm 
22. And so Jesus, said Dr. Kilpatrick, is saying here, in essence, in verse 46, read Psalm 22. Think about Psalm 122. Open to Psalm 122 in your mind. He's obviously, I don't think, thinking people will have their scrolls with them as they stand there at the cross. But in your mind, in other words, go back to Psalm 22. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we read Psalm 22 earlier, didn't we? And so, said Dr. Kilpatrick, Jesus is asking his hearers to consider this psalm in light of of what has been unfolding before their eyes here at Golgotha and to see that Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is about him. And I want us just to consider that reality, that Psalm 22 is about him for a moment. Psalm 22, 7 and 8 reads as follows, All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And that is fulfilled in the portion of Psalm 27, part of the portion that we considered Wednesday night, beginning in verse 39. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, just as the psalm said. And then in verse 43, the religious leaders saying the very taunts, offering the very taunts that are prophesied in Psalm 22, 8. Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It's been coming to pass right before these onlookers' eyes. And so Jesus says, turn in your mind to Psalm 22. Or Psalm 22, verses 11 and 12. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. And that is fulfilled in Matthew 27 as well. Up in verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. These strong Roman soldiers like bulls encircling him. Just as Psalm 22 says, turn, Jesus says, in your mind to the 22nd Psalm. Or verses 14 and 15 All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. And those words match the description by a physician named Mark Eastman. He wrote an article called The Agony of Love, The Medical Aspects of the Crucifixion. I encourage you to perhaps go and Find that online and read it today. Mark Eastman, The Agony of Love, The Medical Aspects of the Crucifixion. And among the sufferings that come with being crucified, Dr. Eastman says, are that your shoulders would be dislocated. My bones are out of joint, Psalm 22. He also mentions that a crucified person would become severely dehydrated because of all that was happening to him. My tongue cleaves to my jaws, Psalm 22. And Dr. Eastman also mentions that some who are crucified suffer cardiac rupture. 
which matches Psalm 22 as well. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Turn in your mind's eye, Jesus is saying, to Psalm 22. Psalm twenty-two sixteen. they pierced my hands and my feet, fulfilled in chapter 27 of Matthew, when they had crucified him. Psalm 22, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, fulfilled in verse 35 of Matthew 27 as well. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And so when Jesus says in verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he is in effect saying, Dr. Kilpatrick taught us, is open your mind, open in your mind right now to Psalm 22. Open in your mind to that passage, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And see that it is coming to pass. Because you see all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. God's word must come to pass. And it does. And I want to say to you today, by way of application, that just as God's words about Jesus must be fulfilled, so must And so will all of his promises in Jesus. They must be fulfilled as well. All of God's words must be fulfilled. And they will be. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That must be fulfilled. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. That must be fulfilled, and it will be. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God's words must and will be fulfilled. And on we could go listing examples so that when all is said and done, the words of Joshua could be repeated to us. Not one word Of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. Live like you believe that. Live like you believe in scriptures fulfilled. They are fulfilled here in Matthew 27 and they will be fulfilled in every other case as well. So then, two scriptures fulfilled. And now also, in the second place, three signs. Three signs in our passage today. The first is recorded for us in verse 
45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. I remember learning about this in seminary as well from a different professor, one whose name I can't remember. But he posed to us the question, why this darkness at Golgotha? Was this a, a satanic darkness brought about by the devil? Is this darkness a sign of God's disapproval of men's actions here? And his answer was neither of these. The darkness, he said, is a sign here of God's judgment, God's wrath on Christ. He pointed us to the plague of darkness in Exodus to show that darkness is a sign of God's judgment. And he reminded us the judgment that God is pouring out here at Golgotha is being poured out on Christ, on his Son. Jesus here is absorbing God's wrath, God's judgment against all the sins of all his people for all time. For these acts of our rebellion, the Lord was pleased to crush him. The Lord was pleased to pour his judgment upon him in his people's stead. And so the darkness here that professor taught us was a sign of that judgment. Praise God that it enveloped the Savior and not us if we are his. So there is the sign of darkness here, the darkness of God's judgment for or against our sin, poured out on Christ. And then, also, upon Jesus' expiration, here we have that very famous sign in verse 51, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now here is a sign as well. Here is a portrait of the fact that the way to God is open through the death that Jesus has died. There was a veil in the temple that hung in front of the most holy place. It hung in front of the place where God manifested his presence. And that veil was a picture of the fact that Our holy God is separate from sinners and that sinners must be separate from him. And it was a picture of the fact that it's not safe for sinners. It's not safe for us unclean ones to approach God's presence. That's what the veil was picturing. But you see, God desires that we approach him. God desires that we not be shut out from his presence and so he sent his son to cleanse us to absorb his wrath upon us to atone for the iniquities which have made a separation between us and our god and when the sins were atoned for when the sins that made that separation were washed away well then the separation was done away as well and The tearing of the veil here 
which was a visible sign of that separation, is now a sign that the separation has been torn open. The tearing of this veil is a picture of the fact that because of Christ's death, we who believe may, in fact, enter into God's presence. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, so that he might open the veil and usher us into the presence of the holy God. So praise God for this sign as well in verse 51. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then let's notice a third sign, picking up in the middle of verse 51. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now, this has to be, at least in my own studies of Christ's passion, this has to be one of the most overlooked of all the events. But it's quite astonishing, isn't it? Dead people coming to life, and not just their souls, but their bodies, we're told in verse 52. And they come into town, and they appear to people. Now, why did God do this? Why did God raise these people from the dead? Well, this is not the resurrection of all of his Saints, but it is a sign of that resurrection. It is a picture and a foreshadowing of that resurrection, a foretaste, John MacArthur calls it, of the resurrection of God's people in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. And the timing of this resurrection here in Matthew 27, says William Hendrickson, the timing of this resurrection signals that the saints' future resurrection life is guaranteed by Christ's death. His death here grants his people life in Matthew 27, grants these saints life in Matthew 27, and so it will be for all of us who are in Christ. His death will grant us life too. Because he died, if we are in him, we will live. Because he died, we will someday, like these saints in verses 52 and 53, arise and come out of the tombs and we will enter the holy city of God. What marvelous signs we have in this passage. Darkness falling upon the land as a symbol of God's judgment upon the sin bearer. The torn veil picturing the separation between God and his people being torn open by the death of Christ. The risen saints foreshadowing the resurrection of all God's people and signifying that such life is granted by Christ death. Three signs. And now a third heading. Two scriptures fulfilled. Three signs and then three sayings. Three sayings that we should notice in this passage. First, notice what is said in verse 
49. After Jesus' words in verse 46 are mistakenly understood in verse 47 as him calling for Elijah, some said, I think probably mockingly now in verse 49, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Maybe I should say it in the tone I think they said it in. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. People have already been mocking Jesus up in verse 40. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Down in verses 42 and 43, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. People have already been mocking him. And now I believe here's another dig in verse 49. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And it's just another reminder here of what our Lord went through in giving himself up for us, in bringing many sons to glory, bearing shame and scoffing rude, says Philip Bliss. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Praise God that he was willing to endure these taunts for the sake of his people. That's one saying. And let's look again at Jesus' own saying up in verse 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now it's true as Dr. Kilpatrick taught us that with this phrase, Jesus is saying in effect, open right now in your mind to Psalm 22. Consider the words of Psalm 22 in light of what has been happening here at Golgotha and see that this psalm is being fulfilled before your very eyes. It's true that Jesus is saying that, but that's not all Jesus is doing here. He's not just saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me as a way of urging people to call to mind the psalm from which those words come. He's also honestly asking this question of his father. He's honestly calling out to the Lord, saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's not mistaken about what's happening here. It's not that Jesus is in so much agony that he thinks God has forsaken him, even though actually God has not forsaken him. No. Jesus is fully cognizant of what's going on here, and he's fully in tune with his Father's way and will and actions. And so when he asks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He asks it because the Father really has forsaken him. But why? What's the answer to Jesus' question? Why has God forsaken him? Why would the God who says to his people, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Why would that God now forsake his only begotten son? My God, my God, why have you forsaken Jesus? Because forsaking Jesus was the only way that we would not be forsaken. 
Forsaking Jesus was the only way that we could be saved. Forsaking Jesus, leaving him to suffer our deserved judgment was the only way that we could escape it. If the Father had come to his aid here and gotten Jesus out of that, this fix, or if he had come to his aid and kept him from having to go to the cross, we would all be damned forever, wouldn't we? Now God in the resurrection does come to Jesus' aid. He does hear his prayer as Psalm 22 indicates his cry for help. But he doesn't hear it here. He doesn't, I shouldn't say he doesn't hear it, but he doesn't answer it here. He leaves Jesus to our deserved fate here. And if he doesn't, if he takes him down off the cross, God in his justice would have had to forsake us. God in his justice would have had to leave us to our fate of death. If he chooses not to leave Jesus on the cross, then we must go to the fate of death ourselves. My God, my God, why have you forsaken Jesus? Answer, so that I would never need to forsake you who believe. My God, my God, why have you forsaken your son so that I would never need to leave you to that fate if you believe? My God, my God, why have you forsaken the Messiah? Because of my commitment, Christian, never to forsake you. Three sayings. There is the saying in verse 49, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And there is that lovely saying, wonderful saying in verse 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lovely, even though it is agonizing because of what it means for us. And now, thirdly, finally, we should consider the saying that we find in verse 54. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening and became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Now it's interesting that while Mark and Luke simply give us the reaction of the centurion, Matthew, did you notice, tells us here that his men had the same reaction with him. The centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So here's a group of Roman soldiers, and certainly they are alarmed by this earthquake, and of course they're alarmed by its happening in connection with the death of this Jesus. And perhaps they're saying something like, if the very earth is shaken by this man's death, he must really be who they say in verse 43 that he claimed to be. He must really be, he really is the Son of God. 
But it's not just the earthquake that has their attention because Matthew also tells us that their recognition of Jesus as the Son of God is connected to the earthquake and the things that were happening. Not just the earthquake, but the things that were happening. Some other things. What things? Well, Mark tells us that the centurion was impressed by the way Jesus breathed his last, by the way Jesus actually expired, by the way he departed this world. But then also the things that were happening and which caught these soldiers' attentions, attention might have included things like the way Jesus here, while being reviled, did not revile in return, and how while suffering he uttered no threats. Perhaps Jesus utter self-control in in the face of the mocking in verses 39 and following may have helped convince these men of his identity. And then maybe it wasn't just what he didn't say from the cross, but also what he did say from the cross that convinced these men that he was God's son. Things like, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Today, to the thief, you shall be with me in paradise. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. We don't know all that Matthew means when he speaks of the things that were happening that these soldiers reacted to But whatever the combination of events that caught their attention, the centurion and those who were keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, truly this was the Son of God. Whatever the combination of events that caught their attention, when they took it all in, they concluded rightly about this Jesus. What about you? We've seen some of the things that were happening today, haven't we? And some of you saw others of them Wednesday night in the previous passage. And of course, many of us have seen quite a bit more of this Jesus in our studies of this gospel over the last months, in our years of church going for many of us in our own Bible reading, but I ask you today, have you looked at the evidence that God has put before you, and like these men, have you concluded, truly this was the Son of God? Have you come to recognize Jesus yourself for who He really is? And have you embraced Him for who He is? Have you come to worship Him as the Son of God? to give allegiance to Him as the Son of God, to trust Him as the Son of God? It's an important question. We mustn't simply read about this event that's at the epicenter of all history, but respond appropriately to it. Have you come to worship, trust, and give allegiance to the Son of God? And while you mull that question... Let me remind you that this Son of God went to this cross to suffer 
in his people's place so that all who do trust in him will be saved. He is worthy of your allegiance. He is worthy of your adoration. He is worthy of your trust. And I urge you today to grant it to him. For truly, this is the Son of God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this portion that really carries us to the very core of it all, the very heart of your plan. Help us to respond well to your Son, who is the heart of that plan, to trust in and worship and give our allegiance to him. We ask in his name. Amen.